Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be, uh, trucking our way through this, this incredible letter that Paul wrote to friends of his in a city uh, that, that he had visited before, planted a church in, but in the meantime, after he had left this congregation, they'd started to really implode by a lot of serious challenges that they were facing, most of which had to do with themselves, with their own selfishness, their own desire to advance themselves in the world. And uh, Paul's calling them on that, and he's confronting them with the message of the gospel at every turn. Now, where we've been, where we were last week, where this section of our letter today falls, is in this big section where Paul's responding to something they wrote to him about. They wrote him asking, what should we do about meat that's been sacrificed at a temple? It's a big deal back then. Because temples were kind of like restaurants. You would go there for social events. You would go there to get a good meal. Uh, you would go there for, for uh, parties, for networking. Um, it was not just a place of worship. And so they, it was a live issue for them. What should we do? Can we not go, is it okay or is it not okay? Are we free or not free to go to the temple, eat food? Last week we saw Paul's first response to them. It was a response that called them to not think about it in terms of what was okay for them, but what would be good for those who saw them. To think about those whom they would interact with who maybe didn't understand what was going on there, didn't understand the significance of Jesus, and thought, oh, Christians can worship other gods. That's cool. I guess I'll do that. And then be led into destruction ultimately. That's what he was warning about. Your freedom is not about you. Your freedom is about what's going to be good for the person you need to serve. That's what that chapter said. Now, chapter 9 seems a little bit like he's taking a break, maybe a parenthesis here, where he's going to talk about something else. But Because he doesn't mention idol meat and temples. He comes back to that in chapter 10. But actually, chapter 9, it's still the same subject. Still trying to make the same point. That the freedom you have in Christ to not have to worry about gods that aren't really gods or sacrifices that aren't real sacrifices. The freedom you have not to worry about that is not a freedom to go and do what you want to do. It's a freedom that turns you loose to do what's best for somebody else. And he puts himself out there in chapter 9 as an example. He wants to open his life up to them and show them that he is not taking his rights in a way that he could and try to model for them what it would look like to set aside what what might be best for them, what they think they want in light of what's good for other people. Now, I think a way to get into it, the way to set it up, is, is to go to the end of this passage before I read the whole thing. It, it, the end of the passage, we're going to take the whole chapter, so we're going to have to take a kind of a high level here. But he, he summarizes his main points at the very end in, a, in an image that's got a lot of power. I think if we understand it, it'll set us up for the, to, to get into, into the chapter deeply. It's the image of an athlete. Verses 24 through 27 give it to us. An athlete who exercises self-control in all things, aiming at this one great prize. Paul says, I'm, I'm like this athlete. I'm running a race. I'm not just boxing at the air. I'm competing to win. And to that end, I discipline my body. I keep it under control at all costs because I want to get what I'm after. Now, th- there's a lot of bad ways to take this. Uh, it, it has been taken as a as kind of a justification for living what you might think of as a, a monastic lifestyle where you sort of deny yourself of things just to do it because your body is evil and you should deny it what it wants. That, that somehow, or maybe rigorous physical exercise for its own sake is a spiritual good. Uh, that is not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about something much more specific. What he's talking about here 
is that you should be rigorous in trimming away anything that's going to hold you back from the prize you're running for, and you should, you should be rigorous in building your life specifically for whatever it is you're running for. It's not about self-deprivation only. Here's, here's maybe an, an, a better analogy for it. Don't think sort of medieval monasticism, somebody whipping himself, right? Don't think about that. Think about Michael Phelps, 2008 campaign for gold in Beijing, I think. Is that right, Beijing? Do you guys remember the media was obsessed with this guy? They were constantly doing little vignettes on him and his life. And one of the ones that really caught on, one of the ones that sticks out the most to, to most of us, I think, is his diet. Do you guys remember this? Uh, the, the dude was eating something like 10,000 calories a day while training. And that's not self-denial, right? right? He's indulging. And, and it wasn't good stuff. It wasn't like he was eating all cliff bars or something. I mean, it was, it was fried eggs. Um, it, it was uh, fried eggs and lots of cheese. They had like four or five omelets a morning, something, like, something crazy like that, like fried onions. Um, he would eat like a, a full pizza for dinner, like just himself. Something like a pound of pasta with sauce for lunch, along with like, like protein drinks and whatever. Not self-deprivation, but this guy's body is a machine. He knows what it needs if he wants to accomplish what he's after. So it's not about just stripping things away. It's about only doing things that are going to get you where you want to go. It's about a life that is rigorously under control for the goal. Run to win. That's Paul's point. And what he gives us in the first verses that lead to that analogy explain what he has done with his life to aim it at one thing, at accomplishing this goal, at gaining the prize of heaven and bringing many people with him. That's what he was living his life for. Now, here's what's interesting about using that analogy. I mean, this is an analogy about self-control and about discipline. But the passage itself, all of chapter 9, the key word there is freedom. He's talking about freedom, about loosing yourself from what had held you back. So how does freedom go along with discipline and self-control? That's the, that's the kind of tension we're going we're gonna to try to unpack this morning. Because Paul, what Paul wants to, to, to communicate to his friends in Corinth and what we're going to try to pull out for ourselves today is that Christian freedom is never about just this blank check to do what you want with your life. Christian freedom is a freedom from what used to hold you back. And a freedom to not worry about yourself, but give yourself away to other people. Christian freedom is not about what's permissible for us, but what's good for others. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, uh, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I prepare to read it? It's a long passage, so get comfortable. I'm going to read the whole thing. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 27. This is the word of the Lord to us. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? 
Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should, not, should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing this, these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to make just two points this morning out of this letter, or this chapter in the letter. The first is that Jesus sets us free from bondage to our own interests. That's the first and the biggest chunk of this chapter. And then that Jesus sets us free for binding ourselves to each other. Freedom from, on the one hand, freedom for, on the other hand. Pretty simple. I want to, I want to show you where we're getting this. I need to do some work here because at the outset, Paul doesn't sound like He's talking about freedom from seeking his own interests. The longest section in this letter is him defending his interests. Him defending his right to take money for the work that he's doing. I mean, I, for one, did not appreciate him saying, don't we have the right to not work for a living? Like, what, what's he trying to say? About those of us who are paid to do what we do in ministry, he and Barnabas have the right to not work for a living. In other words, just do ministry. But he's setting that aside. All, that, all these details in the first 18 verses are Paul setting up how he could legitimately take money for what he's doing. 
And the reason he goes into such detail defending his right is so that it will land fully when he says, I'm setting this away. I don't need it. I'm going to walk you through this so you can see where I'm coming from. He begins with his role as an apostle and, and, and what that role gives him a right to. Um, he, he, he talks about the right that he has to take food and drink, from, to be, have, have those things provided for him as he does his work. He talks about the right that he has to have a wife. I mean, all these other apostles have wives. Why shouldn't Barnabas and I have wives? But ultimately, the main thing that he drills down in is on this issue of taking money for the ministry that he's doing. He says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And then gives examples, just a whole torrent of examples of these, these, these rhetorical questions from verse 7 on. Making the point that, yeah, obviously I have this right. I mean, who, what soldier serves at his own expense? You pay your own wages to go and put your life on the line for this army? Or who that, that runs a vineyard doesn't get to sample some of the goods? What shepherd doesn't get to, to have milk from his flock? And he moves to the law. Even the law of Moses, he says, points us to the fact that, that I should be paid. This, this sort of strange law about not muzzling an ox while he's, while he's uh, threshing or whatever. It's, it's one that, law, that Paul says ultimately was given for our benefit, not for the benefit of the ox. It's given to make a point that the person doing the work, is, he ought to be able to, to glean a little bit, to get something out of it, to have his needs taken care of. He appeals to the principle uh, to the to the practices of the temple from the law of Moses he, he moves to the, the the temple in in verse 13 those who are employed there get their food from the temple some of the meat that's sacrificed is is cut up and given over to those who serve in the temple so that they'll have what they need and he even appeals to Jesus the Lord commanded it there's no, no exactly there's not exactly a chapter and verse here but he's appealing to the teachings of Jesus point is he deserves it but the interesting thing here is that he's not arguing against them. Most of the people that I read, trying to understand what this passage was, was, is saying, suggested that in, in Corinth, these people would not have resented the idea that he deserves money. It's not like they were holding back from him and, and saying, you're not worth it, right? In fact, in Corinth, they would have been more likely to resent the fact that he wasn't taking money. Because one of the things that we've already seen in this letter over and over again is that they were obsessed with status. They were all about where they ranked relative to other people. And in that time, one of the most important symbols of status was who you attached yourself to, what sort of figures who speak, rhetorical, uh, persuasive, uh, eloquent speakers who would be itinerants, which ones you were sort of for, who you liked, who you were with. They were branding themselves by their speakers. And so one of the ways of showing that you had the goods, that you had refined taste, would be that the speaker, or the, the, the persuasive teacher that you attach yourself to was really well paid, right? It's like paying more for a shirt because of how it's branded. Same shirt, but you're really paying for the paying, the, you're paying in order that you might be able to have something you had to pay for, right? How much it costs is, is part of what you get out of it. And that's, that's what would have been true here, that the more expensive, the more, the more this guy could command in fees, then the better it looked when you were able to pay for it and attach yourself to that guy. They would have resented the fact that Paul didn't take money. And he's explaining to them here not that they should fork it over. That's not what he's about. What he's explaining to them here is that this thing he deserves, 
this thing he's entitled to, this thing he could use as a way to make a name for himself in the world, he is willingly setting aside. All this detail defending himself, it all just sets up verse 15 where he says, I have made no use of these rights. Now think about his analogy that he uses at the end to summarize it, about the, about the athlete who disciplines his body so that he's only doing those things that are going to get him towards his goal. Paul's saying, I have set this thing aside that I have, that it's mine by right because I'm after this imperishable prize and I might, be de- I might be deceived into trusting in something perishable if I didn't set aside this right. He's not blaming the other apostles who took money. He's not blaming, you know, pastors that he's setting up in the churches if those churches uh, are willing to fund them. In fact, he says it's a good thing, right? It's good that somebody should be paid for what they're doing. He's saying, I'm not. Because I don't, want any sort of stu- uh, I don't want any sort of stumbling block, anything that might keep someone from coming to the gospel. Paul doesn't need the status or the comfort that would come from healthy wages. And another way of saying it is that his ministry here is not about himself. It's not a means to his own ends. He's not after it for what he gets out of it. It's not a way to obtain what he wants in this life. He is not, in other words, an athlete who's competing for a perishable wreath, but for something else. So what has happened to Paul? What has happened to him? Well, the passage here doesn't go into any detail. And it doesn't have to. Because it's part of a letter that goes into detail in other places. He doesn't go into detail here because he trusts that those who were reading his letter would have already read the first eight chapters, which are full of insight into how Paul can just say, don't need that. Set aside his rights without any fear. He's already written chapter 4, for example. In chapter 4, he told of how he was able to look beyond what others thought of him. Didn't register with him how others judged him. How he was able to look even beyond what he thought of him. He didn't even think about himself that much. Because he knew what God thought of him. Because he was locked in on God's acquittal of him. God's saying over him through Jesus, you are good, you are mine, you are pleasing to the God who made you. He's already said that. That's what sets him free. He's already written chapter 6, where he affirms that it's the Lord who despite our sin washes us, sanctifies, sets us apart so that we aren't who we were, justifies us, looks at us and says, You are who you were made to be, not because of your ability or your goodness, but because of Jesus. It is this Lord, he'll say a little bit later in the letter, who has promised him a life beyond the grave, who has promised him that because Jesus lives, because he's really alive and people have seen him, because this Jesus lives, if you attach yourself to him, if you claim him by faith, then the corruptible will put on the incorruptible. promises him resurrection so with all of this promised to him in the gospel Paul has nothing to protect and he has nothing to prove and so he is free to build his life for something else than his own interests he's free in other words from what naturally rules all of us what naturally rules us is an intense desire to get what we think we need what we think we deserve, what we know we want, and to protect 
what we have. It's in all of us. It's a a survival-esque instinct in us. It rules us. It rules our relationships, which we are constantly evaluating based on how well we're being loved or served by the person we're in relationship with. Do they, are they treating me in the way I deserve to be treated? Are they showing me the proper respect? It's how we approach our, our work lives. Am I getting the status that I want from my performance in my job? All of us do this, right? And Paul is setting that aside. He's saying, I am, I'm giving my life this thing. I'm working with my whole life towards this goal. And the thing that could show that I have status in this life this money that could be a, a, a visible indicator to all who are watching me that I am good at what I do, I'm setting it aside willingly because it may not be good for others. See, these are the things that dominate our minds and our hearts and control how we interact with everything we experience. Am I getting what I need? Am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting what I want? Am I what I want to be? These things rule us. But Jesus sets us free. Because in Jesus we have perfect justification. We don't have to justify ourselves by what we do. Because in Jesus we have the promise of perfect care for all of our needs. We don't have to be constantly seeking our own. Because we have perfect protection through Jesus and the promise that the God who would not spare his own son would never deny us what we need. We don't have to be always protecting our interests. And we are set free from what rules us to be ruled by something else. To be after a different sort of prize. To build our lives for a different sort of goal. That's what Paul models for us. It's not just freedom from pursuing our own interests at all costs. It's freedom for binding ourselves to the interests of others. Now that's where Paul goes in verses 19 to 23. In these verses, he shows what he's done with his freedom. What he's done with his freedom is not just go crazy, right? Do whatever he wants. Just live his life in the moment, of the moment, for whatever his heart desires. His freedom has set him free to build his life for something very specific. And he lays that out for us in verses 19 to 23. So far we've seen what Paul denies himself for the higher purpose of his race, right? Now we're going to see what he builds into himself to help him with his race. So in the Phelps analogy, I can't imagine anything Michael Phelps chose not to eat with his 10,000 calorie, but presumably there were some things that would not have helped him to win his race. Now we're talking, we're off of that. Now we're talking about the things he did choose to eat, right? The 10,000 calories specifically chosen to accomplish this goal. Now Paul's going to point us in that direction. And it's all about other people. It shouldn't surprise us by now. If you've been with us for much of this study at all, you've seen that Paul is constantly turning them away from themselves, from their obsession with their own interests, with what they're getting out of life, to what, he, what they've been called to in Christ, what, what Jesus provides them and what Jesus calls them to in, in service to each other. That's what it's constantly been doing that this whole time. So it shouldn't surprise us that he goes there again. Paul's aiming at the good of others. What he sets aside is not random. It's not him whipping himself for the just just to do it, right? It's him setting aside something that is his by right, that he has a right to, because if he took that thing, it might not help others. And now he sets up this 
all things to all people passage that perhaps you've been familiar with. What I want to point out here in these verses is just a couple simple things. First, that we're free to serve each other. How our freedom turns us loose to serve each other. I think we need that. I think we need to understand how that works based on the gospel before we'll understand specifically where Paul goes here. So, so that we're free, set free to serve each other. And then, and then what we're meant to do for each other. That's really where the details come into play in these, in these few verses. What it is that Paul wants us to aim for in each other that should guide our lives. So, so first though, quickly, that we're free to serve each other. I think that point needs to be made. Um, and, and here I just want to fall back on one of my favorite writings in all of Christian history. There's this treatise by Martin Luther, written several hundred years ago. It's really short. You could knock it out in half an hour. It would be a great use of half an hour this afternoon. It's called The Freedom of a Christian. You can Google it, and it's available for free all over the place on the Internet. Google The Freedom of a Christian, Martin Luther. It's a treatise he wrote defending some of his ideas that he was just starting to release, right after he started to release them into the church at, at that time. And he was, he was getting a lot of resistance, right? about the, the sort of implications of saying that you don't earn your way by your obedience into God's favor. Because if you take that away, then doesn't that mean that nobody will care how they behave, right? If you already have everything you need just by faith, then, then the sort of the lid is off the can of worms at that point, and you've got big problems, and it makes sense. So Paul's, or excuse me, Luther is writing to explain that, explain how it works, how this freedom you have from trying to justify yourself by doing good things actually doesn't turn you loose to do whatever you want, but binds you to a different way of life and motivates you and gives you power for a different way of life, investment of investment in others. It's one of my favorite explanations for what Christians aim for in their lives and why. See, when you believe the gospel, when you believe that God gives you everything you need in Jesus and that he leaves nothing, there's, there's nothing left over for you to accomplish, then you're set free from focusing on yourself. And you're driven to focus on others as Jesus did. So when we, don't need to, when we don't need to pile up good deeds to justify ourselves, because we don't need to win God over by our performance, Luther argued, a Christian, I'm going to quote from, from his treatise, a Christian should be guided in all his works by this thought and contemplate this one thing alone, that he may serve and benefit others in all he does, considering nothing except the need and the advantage of his neighbor. It sounds, like, it sounds like what Paul's doing here, right? Laser focus for his life. He's an athlete disciplining himself for one goal, for one race that he wants to win. Luther continues a little bit later. I will do nothing. This is sort of his manifesto in life. I will do nothing in this life except what I see is necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. See, freedom, freedom from having to justify our existence before God doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. It means we don't have to live for ourselves at all. It means we're no longer the point of our lives and that we're set free for something else. And in the Gospels, in the Gospels way of evaluating things, what we're set free for is to do what Jesus did, which is to give ourselves for the good of other people means we're driven to bind ourselves to what others need. So that's how it works. We're free to serve each other because we, don't, we no longer have to be thinking about ourselves and what we've got to pull off, right? And we're set free to think about other people. Now, now here's, Paul's more specific in this. In, in, the, in the next several verses, what, he's, what he helps us to see is what we're supposed to be doing for each other. Because it's not, it's not just random, 
right? It, it's very, he's very intentional about this. We're set free to serve each other, and we're set free to do specific things for each other. He gives us an idea here, in other words, of what is the, the best thing, the thing that all of us need, the thing we should be seeking out of each other. And this is where he gets really practical for us in our congregation for this year and the years to come. This is what we're after in our investment with each, in, into each other. His aim in life, Paul's aim, is to help others understand and love the promises of the gospel. It's that simple. His aim in life, what he is, what he is aiming, everything he does about what he, does, what he decides not to do, what rights not to take, what he decides to do with his time and energy is aimed at this one thing, to help other people understand and love the promises of God in the gospel. There's nothing that he won't sacrifice. There is nothing he won't set aside or endure if it helps him make those promises clear and compelling to others. I think that's the main point of this all things to all people passage that, we, that we've come to. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with that text and the way that it's been used before. It, it can be used in, I think, a pretty destructive way. There's a way to say, to take this, I, I, do, whatever, I do whatever has to be done. I'm all things to all people. And say, well, Paul just didn't care about his lifestyle at all, right? That if, uh, if what it means to be all things to all people, if, if what it's going to take for me to get you to like me and my church is that I'm going to have to visit prostitutes with you. Think about chapter 6. Paul would say, no, I'm not all things to all people. It's, it's, it's an issue he's already addressed. Some of the people in the church were doing that. It's a very common thing to do in Corinth. And maybe they, maybe they were justifying it saying, hey, I want to be friends with this guy. This is what he does in his spare time. I'll go with him. Paul, Paul says, no, uh, that, that, that's off limits. It's not what Christians are about. It's not a blank check here to just do whatever you want or be whoever somebody wants you to be. It's also not meant to, I don't think it's meant to, to suggest that Paul was some sort, of, some sort of hypocrite, right? Who was always changing and adapting himself and what his personality was like and what his clothes were like or whatever to whoever he was with, just sort of mirroring whoever he's with. We, we know people like that. In some cases, maybe we've been people like that. And it's, not, it's an ugly thing. It's not a thing to, to aspire to. That's not what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about here, when he says that he, to Jews, becomes as a Jew in order to win them, or becomes under the law to those who are under the law in order to win them, or outside the law to those outside the law. What he's talking about is not anything that might help him blend in or make his message more appealing. We know already that that Paul was rigorously faithful to the gospel even when it was foolishness and didn't make sense and wasn't attractive to anybody. What he means first, I think, is that he's willing to remove anything that might be an obstacle to someone understanding and loving the message of the gospel, the promises of God. So he wants to clear out anything that might be a boulder. Or his language earlier in verse 15 is, a, or excuse me, verse 12 is a stumbling block. In verse 12, he specifically says why he set aside his right to take money. He knew there were some people out there who might stumble on their way to the gospel if they thought that he was just in it for the money and that he was going to ask more of them, sort of get them on the hook now, and then jack the price up later, right? Just to prevent anyone having any of those fears, he says, I'm, just, I'm going to set it all aside. I'll work for my money. And so among the Gentiles, we know he did away with circumcision. You guys don't have to be circumcised, he said. God doesn't care about that. Even though it's familiar to Paul, even though it... It was a part of his culture and his upbringing and all that would have been nostalgic to him. He sets it aside, removes that obstacle, and boy, that would have been an obstacle, right? 
Among the Jews, he was content to continue these traditions, not because he had, he had to, right? He wasn't telling the Jews that because they were circumcised or practiced these particular uh, eating uh, regulations or were faithful to these food laws or because they observed holy days that therefore God was going to be more happy with them. It wasn't that. He didn't tell them that. But, but if him sort of throwing the fact that he didn't have to observe these holy days was going to be all they could see, if he threw that in their faces, if he just wore that on his sleeve, then maybe he would never get the chance to talk to them about the gospel. So you know what? If I have to put up with, with these holy days, I'll put up with these holy days when I'm around you. If it's going to give me a chance to win you over. I think there's a, there's a great analogy to that now in, in mission practices, especially in, among women in Muslim contexts. And we... This morning in our Sunday school hour, we were talking about a trip that our church took to Turkey over the summer to connect with and try to encourage uh, workers in Central Asia. And one of the things we noticed there, one of the things we were sort of schooled on before we came was how to dress, particularly for women in this culture. Now, in Christ, women are free to dress comfortably. Obviously, modestly, but modesty is culturally relative, right? And, um, and, and so women, our, our women, for example, are free to wear shorts if they want to, right? In God's, in, in God's economy, they're free to do that. But they set aside that right when we went over to Turkey. And the missionaries who live there permanently, well, sometimes they set aside even more. Sometimes they wear these head-to-toe coverings, wear scarves in very hot climates. Not because they have to, they're free. God accepts them and approves of them if they don't do that. But, but, but their freedom doesn't turn them loose to sort of throw that into the face of their culture. It turns them loose to do whatever they need to do. Yeah, it is important to you that I wear these, this, this, this outfit? I'll wear it if that's going to give me a chance to win you. We're free to defer like that because we don't have to justify ourselves. The, these, these dear women are free to defer like that because they don't have to justify themselves on the terms of American womanhood, where body image and the display of yourself is so important. They're free to set that aside, to not need to be that, because they are who they need to be in Jesus. Freedom means it doesn't matter either way, so I can just focus on the one thing that my life is about, which is getting the gospel to you. What do I need to do? Tell me, and I'll do it. So, so freedom, becoming all things to all people, is, is first about removing obstacles right, that might keep someone from the gospel. And then, and then second, becoming like them is about understanding them. It's about entering into what it's like to be them. I think this is the main thing Paul's talking about here, actually. This has been one of the oldest ways of understanding this passage. That what he's calling for is entering sympathetically into the minds of the people that you're with so you understand what it is they struggle with, what they want, what, what, they, what they're afraid of, what they hope for, so that you get what it's like to be them. You become, as a Jew... take on a Jewish way of looking at the world or you become as one who is not under the law who has that doesn't have that in his background and and you take on what it would be like to be them it's what Augustine called thinking sympathetically this is a quote from St. Augustine on this passage he says a person who nurses a sick man becomes in a sense sick himself not by pretending to have fever it's not like he's just faking it Paul's not pretending here but by but by thinking sympathetically how he would wish to be treated if he were sick himself. That's how he becomes sick. He identifies with the sickness and takes it on as his own, in a sense. I think another way to say this is that he, Paul, Paul uses this language, I'm remaining under the law of Christ. 
What is the law of Christ? What law did Jesus establish by his life? What model did he set? He is the God of all creation who set aside what was his by right, who emptied himself and became like us, who came to us. He didn't make us come to him because he knew we couldn't. He comes to us and he comes as a Jew that he might win the Jews. He takes on the identity of the people that he's come to and he calls us to do the same thing. That's the law of Christ. To give up our rights and do what needs to be done to see that people get a clear presentation of the gospel. They understand it and love it. Now, here's the last thing I'm going to say. I think it's easy to see how this relates to evangelism. I think that's mostly how we talk about this passage. Uh, how, how, it should, how it should shape the way we interact with other cultures, for example, at home and abroad. But I want to remind you about the context for this, this section of the letter. Paul's speaking to a local church about how they're supposed to treat each other. He's getting on to them for the way they were failing to love each other well. And he's basically saying your life as, as a race is sloppy. You're beating at the air. You're driven only by what you want in the moment, by what you can get out of the status that Christianity offers you. You're wanting, you're wanting to use your freedom to do what you want to do, and you're not thinking about what other people need. And so what Paul's calling them to here is a different way of doing community. What, he, what he's calling them to is to see each other sympathetically, to aim their lives at understanding what each other needs, and then at giving, that, giving the gospel into that need. What he's aiming them, what he's calling them to aim for is Luther's tunnel vision. I will do nothing with my life except what is beneficial to my neighbor. And what he's saying here is that what your neighbor needs more than anything else, what this community needs from you is a constant, regular, intentional pointing from yourself and the circumstances of your life to Jesus so that your neighbors see and love all that God offers them in him. What we need each other, what we're bound to serve, how we're bound to serve each other is by giving each other Jesus. Paul wants to see others saved saved by the gospel. Over and over again in this passage, he says, I do this that I might win more. I do this that I might win more. That I might win more. That's why he sets aside. That's why he puts on. He does what he needs to do to get the gospel to people. And in our context, in in our community, as a local church, What we're meant to do is to live with this laser-like focus on each other. What is it going to take for me to get you the gospel? To help you see it, remember it, understand it, and then love it. What kind of rights am I going to have to set aside? What kind of time priorities am I going to have to restructure? All of us... All of us have responsibilities that we can't control and that we shouldn't want to shake at work, among our families, in school. But is there more that we could do to trim away what keeps us from our goal? To yield what is our right and maybe our desire so that we can be more driven towards each other? And what about how you spend time with each other? When you, when, once you've got that time, once you're with each other, how are you using that time? I think that's what this passage calls you to ask. Are you using the time in the way that Paul would, with a laser-like tunnel vision focus on what your friend really needs? 
What sorts of things do you talk about? How do you judge whether you want to spend time with somebody in our church? It's natural to focus on whether people are like us, whether they're going to share our interests. But Paul, Paul works in the opposite direction. Like Christ, Paul goes to people wherever they are. What he asks is not, what is your interest so I can tell whether we're going to be compatible? He says, what are your interests so that I can go and share those interests and therefore help you? Build you into my life so that I can help you see Jesus and love him. See, that's what gospel-centered community does. It drives us to each other where we are, not, not demanding that others come to us on our terms. It's to take on the law of Christ who goes to those in need and does what needs to be done. It doesn't matter who we are, what we're like. Others in our community are opportunities for communicating the gospel, and we've got to be locked in on that. And that only happens when God's grace so changes us that we are set free from self-absorption. So pray with me now that our Father would do this for us. Father, we are, we are looking ahead to an, another year as a church in which the things we want to see happen we're gonna, are going to require more power than we have. And so we pray to you now, looking ahead and through this passage, that you would give us Uh, to give us the freedom that comes from trusting your promises to us. That we have nothing to prove and nothing to protect because all that matters is what's offered to us in Jesus and nothing can take that away. And from that place, help us to love like Jesus loves. To identify with each other and to speak the promises of the gospel with all the hope that's in them to each other as a way of life. We want lives built for that purpose and a community shaped by that. And so we pray to you, Father, do it for us and in us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.